From Cleveland, Ohio, this is the Cleveland Stage Podcast, brought to you by Fog Properties. Flexible spaces, all the right places. Visit FOGG.com for information. And now, your hosts, Tyler Whitten and Ian Wolfgang Hins. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Cleveland Stage Podcast. I'm your co-host, Tyler Whitten, and I'm riding solo for this special edition of the Cleveland Stage Podcast, as Ian Hins is hard at work at teching Angels in America Perestroika. As that show opens, uh, I was able to sit down with our friends over at the AIDS Clinical Trials Unit here in University Circle in Cleveland. Uh, They're part of University Hospitals and Case Western Reserve University. Uh, They've been around for about 30 years, and Brooke, Bob, and Ann, who I was able to sit down with, have all been working there for a number of years. Uh, And they're on the front lines. And, you know, as we talk about uh, Angels in America, both productions, uh, you know, we're talking a lot about bringing awareness to AIDS and HIV. You know, and that play does obviously a really good job as it's 25, 30 years ago of chronicling the fights and how we didn't know anything at the time and how everybody was scared of it. And it's, it's, it was a great conversation with our friends here to see how far we've come, but there is still work to be done and they are on the front lines of doing that work. Uh, so I applaud them and I, I was internally grateful for the graciousness of their time in sitting down with me for a little bit. Uh, in the middle of the day and invite me to their offices and speak with us about, you know, the work that they're doing, uh, how we can help. Uh, we talked a lot about the stigma that is attached to HIV and AIDS. Uh, and, you know, we talked a lot about um, the technology or at least the advances in treatment that have happened even in the last few years and where we're going and hopefully where we'll be, you know, a decade down the road in regards to this fight. So, uh, you know, we've been working with them, especially this year, uh, with both productions of Angels in America. Uh, They've been able to come to performances and talk with our audiences about the work that they're doing and how we can all help. Uh, We also co-community sponsored a film at the Cleveland International Film Festival this year called After Louie, starring Alan Cumming, and that was great. It was great to see Bob at the screening of that. Uh, So, you know, we're... We're trying. Anytime that we can get uh, with local community organizations that we feel are doing really great work, especially when they tie in with the plays that we're working on, then I think that's how art and theater can really uh, reach beyond the stage or the canvas or the sheet music or whatever uh, and really make a difference. And hopefully, um, you know, we're just trying to help bring awareness to the work that they're doing at the clinical trials unit. And this interview, I think, will will do that. They're very, um, they're a lot of fun to talk to. Uh, they're obviously very informative. Uh, so this is a great conversation, and we're we're proud to share it with you. And also, you know, this is opening night for Angels in America tonight. Uh, it's Friday, April twenty seventh. Obviously, this podcast will be around for even longer than our production of Angels in America. All right, so here you go, our conversation with Brooke, Bob, and Ann. Uh, please read the description of this podcast, and you'll hear at the end of the show uh, how to contact them. They have really the greatest email ever. <laughs> you'll get that later. All right, here you go. My interview with uh, the AIDS Clinical Trials Unit here in Cleveland. Actually opening tomorrow night. Oh, so cool. it's why Ian's not here, because they're still actually teching the show. Okay. Which um, I'm sure you know is part of the stressful part of theater. Yeah. <laughs> Sure. Where people like me are just like, I'm going to go do something else. <laughs> All right, so we're here today uh, at the Clinical Trials Unit, 
here in, uh, what's the affiliation? Is it University Hospitals and Case Western University? Yes. Okay. Yes, it is. And we're right in the heart of, um, what do you call this area? I got lost. I grew up in Cleveland, and I'm like, there are more streets here than yeah. I think I've ever seen downtown. The beautiful University Circle. Okay, great. Uh, and they were located on Cornell Street. Mm-hmm. And this is the clinical trials unit. And how long has this been here? Uh, we were established in 1987. So we've been okay. here for about 31 years. Really, we were established what, with the first large federal response to HIV AIDS. Okay. Unfortunately, it was a delayed response, but once it started going, um, uh, it was about 1987. So, okay. so we're looking at over 30 years now. Mm-hmm. Correct. That's great. And so why don't we introduce ourselves? Sure, Bob. Sure. Uh, my name is Bob Bucklew, and I'm the outreach coordinator here at the unit. Okay. I'm Brooke Willis. I'm a community educator and recruiter for the studies. And we have, we can hear you, Ann. Yeah. Ann Conrad, a nurse practitioner and one of the research nurses here at the unit. Great. And how long have you all been working here? Uh, 16 years wow. for me. I know. Uh, almost eight. Okay. Mm-hmm. Two this time around, but before this for about 16. So you have been here for a long time. Yeah. And you know, one of the things that we talk about, especially, uh, so we're, you know, we're opening Angels in America, part two, Perestroika, and the whole process for many of us has been the, uh, the I guess, reintroduction to AIDS, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And in a lot of ways, we, we always talk about and debate about how the advances in AIDS and HIV research and um, I guess treatment had advanced to a point where maybe people aren't as, it's not in the forefront of a lot of people as it was 30 years ago, let's say, when this unit began, right? Um, So maybe we can talk a little bit about that, a little bit about the advancement that has happened and not only uh, diagnosing HIV, but also treating HIV. And um, yeah, I'll start off and uh, please, Brooke and Ann, you could jump in. But back when we first started in 1987, an HIV diagnosis was really quite a horrible thing. Mm -hmm. Because what it meant was within four to five years, a person's immune system would start collapsing. Um, They would then get some really horrible, horrible um, diseases, infectious diseases, um, and then they would die, generally a horrible death. And so it really was, there wasn't, uh, it was that diagnosis was uh, one of, uh, of horror in some ways. And I think that's reflected in the play, sure. actually, very much, uh, which is when Tony Kushner wrote the play, is mm-hmm. we, that's what we were dealing with. And then something happened because of research, because of medical research. In 1996, anti-HIV medicines uh, reached a point where it was no longer a death sentence. That that initial horror of a diagnosis began to fade. And right now, if we get somebody diagnosed with HIV infection before their immune system really collapses, they are looking at pretty much a normal lifespan. Uh, If we get them on anti-HIV medicines, which is available for everyone right now. Um, So we really are looking at a very much a different different, uh, result of a diagnosis of HIV. And the research that's being done here and elsewhere is one of the reasons that's happened. Mm -hmm. It takes research to prove that these meds work and or that this is the next generation of the med that we need to try. Um, yeah, we have gone from giving them three pills six times a day to one pill once a day. Wow. That's a big deal. Yeah. 
But there is this kind of strange relapse now, 20 years after uh, the development of, uh, of successful ARVs, is that a lot of young people just don't get it. They don't understand that it's still a huge issue and still something they really need to pay attention to. A lot of young people just, they don't know the history of HIV and AIDS, and so they don't really think about it. And there's been, a, I think, a significant gap in healthcare education around AIDS in high schools, particularly mm -hmm. middle schools and high schools. Yeah, and, and even though we're, I think all three of us would agree things are so much better, and they are, I, I think that's pretty much a, a fact, it's not an opinion, yet an HIV diagnosis is still a big deal sure. for anybody. And so we're not trying to downplay that somebody being told that they're HIV, that is both an emotional, uh, a medical, um, and sometimes it's a spiritual uh, upset. And that, uh, so we're not trying to downplay that piece. And so Brooke, thanks for bringing that up, is uh, simply because people aren't dying the way they are. It's off, um, it's off the front pages, uh, but it's still very much a, um, a, an issue. Um, and we are continually sort of surprised at how little information is being given to young people in schools about HIV. And when we're talking to people, a lot of people say, is it still an issue? Is HIV still an issue? And obviously the answer is yes. Yeah, and that's, that's a lot of the things that we talked about, especially in relation to Angels in America. And we did the Normal Heart, which is a similar play uh, a few years ago. Sure. And the conversation is always, well, how is this relatable now when people aren't dying of AIDS as they were when the play first came out 25 years ago, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, we realize it's actually become, it stays almost as important because it is letting people know that this is still prevalent, especially in certain populations. You know, these are things that we're neglecting, like you said, especially in youth education. Um, you know, there's a myriad probably of factors that we're neglecting when it comes sure. to sex education for sure. our youth. Uh, you know, and certainly prevention of diseases is one of them. Um, and I think that's part of what has been really successful with Angels in America. And we're seeing a resurgence of this play, not just because it's 25 years ago, but it's being produced all over the country. And I think a lot of that has to do with, A, our political climate. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, how this relates in other areas of our of our country. And, you know, political, whether it's religious or whatever. You know, there are things that we neglect it seems that we shouldn't be neglecting and it seems even in the last I don't know 15 20 years that our attention span has gotten so quick that people just kind of move on to the next thing right and thankfully this kind of thing is bringing more awareness that this is still important this is things that we need to talk about um, and so how like what are some of the obstacles that you find in the work that you do and being even more successful than you already are. I would say that, well, one of the things that we do is we have um, a couple different types of clinical trials, and I'm gonna use the word obstacles to take your bar or barriers that we have to those are very different. One is we continue to have clinical trials for people living with HIV, so treatment trials, as you mentioned, or trials that look at things that HIV people face. So it might not just be anti-HIV medicines, but it might be things such as cancers, various cancers that people with HIV might have more frequently. So we're looking at, at sort of that quality of life issue and sort of non-HIV specific uh, illnesses. And um, that's one of the groups of people that we have, but we're also doing some HIV prevention trials. So um, right now, 
focusing in on HIV vaccine trials, prevention vaccine trials. So those are two sort of different groups of people. Um, I think in terms of HIV positive people or people living with HIV, um, sort of our biggest obstacle is our trials have become very, very specific and very, very, uh, some of them are ask them to do a lot of things, uh, whether various medical procedures or things like that. Um, and a lot of our HIV uh, people living with HIV, they're back to work. They're living full lives. And so to ask them to take part of that full life and dedicate it to research, sometimes that's difficult. But that community has always supported us and supported research and they continue to do so. Our HIV vaccine trials, specifically those where we're looking not necessarily for people at high risk of HIV infection, so we're looking at sort of the broad, lower risk folks, um, it's just really about getting the word out. And yeah, and sometimes uh, one of the biggest barriers we have, obstacles, is that people don't know that we exist. Mm -hmm. And people don't realize that we have this huge research center needing volunteers all the time. Even though we've been around for 30 years, a lot of the people we talked to had no idea that we were here or that we needed human volunteers for studies in mm. the first place. So, yeah. So just getting the word out, and obviously one of the the ways is is uh, partnering with community organizations like Ensemble, sure. which is really helpful. Is there a, a stigma that's attached to it that I, that you find that maybe prevents people from uh, even facing the possibility that they could have? HIV. <laughs> the answer is yeah. I mean, yeah. The answer is yes. We work on eradicating HIV stigma every single day. Yeah. It's in everything that we do. Uh, all of our community education, all of our marketing and outreach, all of our conversations. Um, it just surrounds everything that we do, unfortunately. Uh, you know, there's the lack of education, but then there's the, also the people who do know a little bit about HIV and AIDS and just continue to surround it with that ugly, unnecessary uh, stigma about, you know, behaviors and you're bad and you're less than, you're worth less than whatever. Um, it's just really unfortunate that that's so much of our work is educating people around, you know, Anybody can get HIV. Anybody can be at risk. Yeah, it's really everybody's problem. And I think that that's. And thank you, Brooke. And I, to jump on that is one of the reasons we get so excited about working with groups like Ensemble. That is not a medical It's not a medical group, and it's an arts group. And that is because one of the things that art can do, whether it be theater, whether it can be um, sculptural art or visual art or music or whatever, is it touches people in that non-rational way because stigma is an emotion. Stigma is, mm -hmm. is a reactive emotion um, to put on things. It's not based on facts. It's based on people's feelings. And one of the things that arts do, can do, is uh, touch those emotions and can people can work through their fears or work through their ignorance or work through whatever. Um, and I think art can really help that. And certainly good plays, uh, like Angels in America, obviously, um, can do a lot of very good uh, in that aspect. So It feels like there's almost, like what art can do is add a bit of humanity to it, right? Um, you know, and I think AIDS, in the 80s it seemed, I mean, I was just a child in the 80s, um, but it seemed like AIDS, the stigma was stamped on it right away, right? And you know, when, when people, somebody gets cancer, when they get lung cancer from smoking or whatever, we go, oh, that's too bad. 
poor guy. But someone gets AIDS and we go, judgment, judgment, judgment. And that started from the get-go. And it came from the top. It came from the government and it leaped down through the media and down to the general population. And it seems like, you know, how do we make that go away? How do we make people understand that this is not a thing that, this is something that just kind of happens to people. This isn't, you know, we didn't choose this. No, and they don't deserve it. And they don't deserve it, correct. You know, how do we get that across to people? I think that's one of the things that art can certainly try. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, we live in America, (laughs) in Cleveland, Mm -hmm. where the reach that art has is limited. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, I mean, like, how, you know, how do the Clinical Trials Unit or other organizations within, even in an area or abroad that you know about, you know, what are the steps that they provide or do, and how can people in the community even help uh, enhance that? I think part of it is is just normalizing it mm-hmm. as well. It's just n- another condition. It's just another virus, you know. It's just another a medical thing to deal with. And having conversations with, you know, hundreds and thousands of people. Just having a lot of conversations so that pe- people understand. People with HIV are ju- just like you and I, just like everybody else. It reminds me a lot about the uh, kind of the political approach to LGBT uh, equality issues. Uh, you know, one of the most successful things you can do is just have more conversations with people in the community and let them know that these things are important to people and you will you know change their minds very quickly mm-hmm. just just by reaching out and talking to them and just to pull in um, something from the past is one of an act up which was um, which um, I, I think we need to describe what ACT UP, mm-hmm. up is because we can't assume that everybody knows because everybody doesn't know. But it was really a group of led by HIV uh, positive people, people living with HIV uh, back in the day when there was no medicine, when uh, it was a death sentence. Um, and they said no more. And their one of the most effective slogans was silence equals death. Mm-hmm. And so I think in terms of stigma and in terms of continued support that we need for research and for care and services for people living with HIV, um, part of it is just talking about it and, and not being afraid to say HIV. And if you want to, I know, if you want to stop conversation <laughs> in, in certain groups, you come in and say HIV and everybody's gonna stop talking and look at you, what is that? So that, just getting over that stigma um, of working with HIV or volunteering for HIV or being in an HIV vaccine trial. I will often thank people for coming in just to find out about our trials because they heard the initials HIV and didn't run away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, I said, that makes you a selected minority and that makes you a good person. <laughs> I put my value judgment on One that. One question we ask all of the HIV vaccine participants every time we see them is about social impact positive or negative and and the most often negative is my folks just don't understand mm. why I'm doing this you know they're they're giving something to society that society needs but some of the older folks don't look at it that way they, they don't trust the medical establishment and I have participants educating other people because they're on this trial mm. You know, I <laughs> I probably overthink things, and it could be the playwright in me. Uh, but trying to find, um, and this is something I always go back to when I, uh, on this topic, which is 
what is the root of this the, the stigma, let's say, right? And I think it feels like in conversations I've had with people, um, it feels like one of the, the hurdles and obstacles or barriers is this idea that we still have a puritanical approach to sex in this country. Absolutely. And uh, HIV to everybody sort of equals sex, right? And because we can't openly talk about sex, that means we can't then overly talk, openly talk about the effects of sex or what can happen with sex. You know, do you find that even in your work that people sort of are, are constricted by this maybe uh, archaic approach to sex? I don't think our participants are sure. at all because we are asking them very personal questions yeah. and there's no, you know, they, right. don't, they don't hesitate to share with us because I think we look at it, we're not judgmental about it sure. at all. It, sex is sex and it's different for every person and it's okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. But sometimes the groups that we're uh, doing community outreach with uh, have a lot of sensitivities in those areas. I'm just thinking of one example of a, a certain community college on the west side and uh, part of my uh, informational display was a giant rainbow dildo and uh, somebody from some department called the campus police and said that Come on. this was inappropriate and should be removed and we should be, you know, talked to about it. Uh, yeah, they just they just weren't having it. Was it the size? <laughs> was, it, was it the rainbow colors? I think colors? it was the rainbow. I yeah. Think it was the rainbow. <laughs> Don't worry, right. that gay <laughs> They really felt it was just inappropriate to have anything sexual sitting on the table. Like, well, you know, yeah. that's the reason that we're doing this. Yeah. Yeah. To have these conversations. Yeah. Open yeah. the communication. Yeah. And, I, and I think you're correct. I think, I think it is. I think that certainly back in the day when HIV started coming around, it was homosexuals, Haitians, um, injection drug users, and uh, hemophiliacs. Yeah, Yeah. and the hemophiliacs, they were the innocent ones, and the Haitians were bad because they were Haitian, black and not white, so you got that all thrown on them, and then certainly at that point in time, gay people were really thought of as being uh, deserving of all this type of thing. And I think I agree 100% with Anne, is I think that one of the things our participants, particularly those that are not HIV positive that are coming for our volunteers, is they actually are somewhat um, pleased with how we address sexual nature. We address it as it being very upfront and a very normal and a very natural thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and But I do also believe that a lot of the stigma associated is the prime, uh, is uh, how HIV is transmitted sexually and through injection drug use. And uh, in both of those cases, uh, America has a lot of judgment going on. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Do you think that, uh, I don't want to be conspiracist here <laughs> but let's go into those waters okay sure. uh, I mean do you think a lot of that you know I remember so I guess the outboard was mid 80s let's say 83 84 so I was probably I was born in 76 so I was in that 78 range and I remember when my father when it came out mm-hmm. when it was a big thing that was on the news every night and they had all these theories. Well, don't sit on a toilet seat. Don't kiss people. You know, don't shake hands. 
and it was those who had a blood transfusion between these years were at risk. My father had a blood transfusion at that time, so he, of course, was worried. Uh, and there was a lot of like, ah, do you feel like, you know, was it at the time we just didn't know? Or do you feel as though information was being withheld or being manipulated in order to tell a certain sort of story? Well, I think in the first few years, even the scientists didn't exactly know how it was transmitted, what was going on. Mm -hmm. But after a few years, it, it was obvious that it was a virus and it wasn't going to be transmitted. You know, it wasn't going to sit on a toothbrush for eight hours until, right. you know, until somebody else shares your toothbrush. Uh, so it's been a very long time that we've known, known exactly how it's transmitted and exactly how it's not. So it's not really an excuse now, but maybe in the very early days. Yeah. But I mean, that could that would carry over, wouldn't it? Oh, sure. I mean, the first thing people hear, and we're seeing that now, it's being a highly successful tactic in politics. Mm -hmm. Just tell them something, and they'll believe it, whether it's true or not. And, say it over and we'll just ride that that horse as long as we can. Yeah. And it feels like there may, have, you know, that's a lot of what maybe the stigma is, right? It was. But, but yet you also but also I think the stigma I think it's a little I think it's a little deeper than that I think it's a little deeper than people being manipulated I I think one of I mean it's, certainly homophobia sure. is but is even a within the gay community though even I, I so I don't want to let the even though proud member here don't I don't want to <laughs> let the gay community off the hook because there is a lot of anti not a lot but you actually you don't have to go too far to bump into anti HIV oh absolutely feelings absolutely. stuff within the gay community um, in terms of um, um, and that, that's really so I think it goes a little beyond that I, I think I think part of it is a disease I think there's a natural human tendency to like ooh on disease not go towards it you go go away from it. Uh, but I, yeah, I mean, even the common cold. If somebody sneezes, exactly. you're like, all right, Tom, sure, exactly. why don't you leave the room or go home? Exactly. Right. exactly. So I think that that, and even cancer, you had mentioned cancer. We don't generally blame people with cancer, but yeah, you, I, I've heard people that have had cancer say how people react to them. So I think there's a part of that human thing, but I also think it, it does involve um, really wanting to put the blame, especially with maybe within the gay community, is put the blame on these people that have HIV for their behavior, and that somehow protects them, mm. protects the person having that feeling that it's not going to happen to me. It's not, I'm not really at risk because they did something bad, which is not true. Right. I would never do that. Right, so, so I'm, not, okay. it, I'm not really at risk for it. So, Just thinking about some of the common language you've heard about on um, you know, the, the gay dating apps, you know, the phone apps about being clean and wanting mm. oh, only to hook up with somebody who's clean. You know, that whole clean, dirty thing mm -hmm. continues to this day. And it's, it's just amazing that some of that, even in a gay community, which knows better, should know better about treating each other properly, still happens. Yeah. Yeah. Is that, um, I mean, is that part of what, is that the younger generation? I mean, is that having lost connection with with what was going on 20, 30 years ago? It's a good question. Yeah, that, that, that I'm not sure. Although I don't want I mean, to, I, I don't <laughs> want to make this. Uh, and I'm of the old. You were born the year I graduated high school. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, I'm definitely of that other generation. But yeah. I also, though, we have had trials where we have enrolled people in our prevention trials, and a lot, a lot, a lot of young gay and bisexual men 
come to volunteer for those trials. So I don't want to make this, oh, this younger generation, sure. stay off my lawn type of thing, is that they really, there are a lot of young gay and bisexual men and transgender men and women that really do want to help and really yeah. do feel connected. So I don't want to, I don't want to paint this as, oh, those youngsters don't know, because some of them are, are willing to put their health and on the line. And have been there very enthusiastic. Very enthusiastic. So, studies. yeah, so I don't mean to, you know, tarnish a generation, you know. No, yeah, of course. There's certainly that core within both older and... But they didn't live through what what we know. Exactly. And and I think it's hard to impress that on them when it is history, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's something. I remember my first few months in clinic, especially are in my mind, we buried at least one patient every week, mm. at least, year. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about some of the advancements that have happened in the last few years. Sure. Um, you know, when was the, when was when was the uptick, if you will, uh, as far as testing goes? I know now there's a. I'm going to forget the name, but there's a 24-hour test, right? Well, there's one that's 20-minute test. 20 20 test. Yeah. Um, you know, you can go in, get it done, and then they, you know, if you test, if I remember correctly, mm-hmm. um, if you test positive, they, then they give you, like, a serious diagnosis right. or whatever. One. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when did all that, what were the breakthroughs in that when sort of a The testing happened, I think, actually in the mid-80s, I, well, mid remember, to later 80s. We used to take blood and send it to Columbus. Right, and it would take, it would take like 10 days to, to get that. Back. That was a horrible 10 days. That waiting. was a horrible Sure, yeah. <laughs> I remember those 10 days, and it was horrible, yeah. And now, I don't know when the, I don't remember when. Yeah, and they just, there's been just, grad in terms of, Testing has just been improvement, improvement. Now you don't even have to have a blood draw. You yeah. could actually just yeah. scrape your oh, cheek really? with cheek a swab. with a cheek swab. So they've really the concept of they've really improved them. They've become more sensitive. Uh, you could actually buy kits and take mm-hmm. them home. You don't even have to go somewhere. Right. Um, so they're really the concept of testing. But really, I think to the mid to the late '80s is when testing first. They've identified the virus and then they identified how to test for it. Right. Um, it wasn't until 1996, though, that they really had good treatment, and it was right. sort of people. It's a revolution. It, it really was. It's like people on the brink of death came back, mm. and it, it really was great. Things have continued to improve um, for people living with HIV uh, to the point of, like we say, single so, pill dose a combination yeah. a day, which is super easy yeah. to take for most people. Mm-hmm. But one of the things I think we want to talk about, and that came about uh, more recently, and this is in terms of prevention, and that's something with a horrible name of pre-exposure prophylaxis, Mm -hmm. but they call it the shortest PrEP. And so, Brooke, do you want to give us a definition of what PrEP is? Sure. So, PrEP is really amazing development in the last few years uh, for HIV prevention, that is, for HIV-negative people who do not have the virus. And it was actually uh, known about for probably up up to 10 years ago, but in 2012, I believe, the FDA mm-hmm. approved it, and in 2015, the CDC started recommending it. And it's been a very kind of long, slow rollout, uh, but it's basically, you might think of it as uh, the um, birth control for the, for the gay community. Uh, it's incredibly successful if you take this medicine every single day and you have this anti-HIV medicine 
in your body at all times, you're basically never going to become HIV infected, no matter what you're doing. Wow. So these are two of the same medicines that HIV positive people take for their health care. Now it's for HIV negative people as preventive health care. Mm-hmm. And it works. And, and it, it works. works. So over 98% effective. More, wow. more effective than condoms. Yes. I mean, it's very, very successful. Although the PrEP strategy also includes trying to keep using condoms sure. and seeing your doctor on a very regular basis and getting STD testing on a regular basis. But so, up, and it's two drugs, but it's one pill a day. Mm-hmm. So um, all insurance companies, as far as I know, are covering it. Um, Medic. There's great copay cards if they're not. Yeah, and uh, the state of Ohio is actually going to be uh, starting an assistance program for people who might who can't afford it. So it's one pill a day, and you will stay HIV negative. Um, there have been very, very few cases of uh, people becoming HIV positive. Um, and so that's that's a huge development in places such as San Francisco. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, you, you, we've essentially cured HIV. Uh, in a way, not cured it. Not cured it, but no. we've we've, we've allowed it that you would just never get eliminated it. Infections. We've eliminated yes. new infections. Yeah. Right. Um, in San Francisco, where they've really rolled it out, where they have clinics that specifically serve gay male com- the gay male community, so they have a, the services out there are incredible, um, understandably so. Uh, where they've really rolled it out, their HIV infections new in San Francisco are now lower than Cleveland's. Oh. And Cleveland has a much, much smaller gay community. Sure. So it works if people understand it and can get access to it and take it and get the support to stay on it. So we're, you know, but like other things, uh, who is the least able to get information about it and um, access it are uh, poor African-American young uh, gay bisexual men who underserved are communities underserved communities. communities so yeah so it's once again I mean, they need to reach out to those young right so it's awareness it's not access right I mean they can right. get yes. it yes yes okay. yes well and I also think women mm-hmm. aren't availing themselves of this either and exactly. as they should be yes exactly exactly so who are the the populations that are most acceptable still to HIV then? Is it all the underserved that we talked about, that we just talked about? The it's the... People with positive partners, people with multiple partners, people who are doing, uh, you know, sex for uh, for living conditions. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, gay, the gay community, uh, the gay male community, I should say. Um, mm-hmm. And part of it, and, and when you're looking at the gay community, uh, you really also need to break it down in terms of African-American gay male men are at a much higher risk. That's not because, and I always feel the need to say that's not because they're more promiscuous or more whatever. There's already, somebody's risk of HIV infection is a lot of that depends on not their just their individual behavior, but how much HIV is in their community already. Mm-hmm. So. For instance, and I, the example I use is a straight um, young man in living in Cuyahoga County, and then you take an African American um, gay man living in Cuyahoga County and a white gay man living in Cuyahoga County. So the young straight man can not use a condom, can basically be having sex with any woman who will push him off of her. You know, I mean, it's just just out there doing whatever he can. His risk of HIV infection is probably probably pretty low. You make the white gay male, 
he is sexually active, his risk is going to be a certain, is going to be much higher because there is so much more um, HIV within the white gay male community. But when you look at the African American, his community, his sexual community, is going to have a lot more HIV in it. So every time he has sex with somebody, his risk of HIV infection is more than the white gay male. So he's going to have to be more particular, more careful, more condoms than anybody else. And that's simply, that's an infectious disease concept, you know, so. Um. Yeah, we spoke with uh, this young woman, Misha, who, um, is a nurse graduate student, and she works a lot with a lot of clinics around Cleveland. One of the things, things that she talked about was um, African-American women are, have a high risk, and it's not because of behavior, but it's because of awareness, right? We, they just knew how, to, how easy it is to prevent the pill, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they, their risk would go down, and that's something that we just... You know, it's white privilege on my end for sure that you don't think about that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's just allowing people the opportunity <laughs> to have this to take advantage of these uh, advancements that we've made. Sure. Uh, and not only, I mean, certainly HIV, but I'm, there's a whole slew of medical conditions I think that would be, um, you know, helped mm-hmm. by having more awareness and actually reaching out to the populations um, that need it most. Uh, and it sounds like the work you're doing here is aiming to do that. Yeah? We try. Yeah. So, uh, I have two big questions. Um, one is, we talked about the advancements over the last few years. You know, where do you see it going? Like, what's next? Or where do you see the trends going? Where are we going to be in five years that we're going to be talking about? Let me, let me jump in here and then. Um, is the first thing is we might be moving a little way a, away from pills Mm -hmm. because right now uh, it requires if you're living with HIV you need to take at least one pill a day and even though that sounds simple and it it can be simple for some people that's very difficult for a lot of people and to miss doses is not a good thing so one of the things we're looking about is a long-term maybe a shot of Mm anti-HIV medicines that people might need to only get once a month or maybe even once every month so to sort of take away that necessity of taking a pill a day. Uh, Also, I think a little further out than a shot would be maybe an implant. Um, So if, and for women uh, that know uh, various birth control measures, they're going to start seeing somewhat of a a repeat here. And that's intentional on our part because we understand that one thing is not going to help everybody. So people need to have choices in how to do that. But certainly sort of the longer term anti-HIV medicine I see happening maybe within, you said five years. Mm -hmm. I know we're starting a trial here, or we'll be starting a trial relatively soon uh, for people living with HIV, and they will be getting an injection of anti-HIV medicine instead of a pill. So I think that ease of um, keeping people with medicine in their body, sufficient amount of medicine, I think I think that's one of the things we will be seeing too. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. what I was going to say. We're going to inject. I mean, if we can get them to an injection or an implantable. Yeah. 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 But I also think that, um, and that's absolutely true. But I also think one of the big things that we're going to be looking at in the next few years is a is a dramatic overall lowering of new infections mm-hmm. in the community, yeah. both for you know, it, uh, mm-hmm. once we get 
you know, more doctors uh, aware about prescribing PrEP for people who might be at risk, but also for HIV positive people um, taking their medicines every single day. There's this relatively recent uh, statement about U equals U, undetectable equals untransmittable. I think the more people know that and understand it, um, they'll realize that uh, that's going to drive also a big reduction in HIV infections. People who are on their medicine and taking the pill every single day are not going to infect anyone at any time, no matter what they're doing. So, yes, well. that's, that's been proven with 100% um, certainty, actually, and, and it's very rare that anybody in research will say 100%, mm -hmm. but they did a study. And when Brooks says undetectable, somebody takes their anti-HIV medicines, that means the amount of virus in their blood and in their body fluids goes down so far that we can't find it. Now it's still there, mm -hmm. but um, but it's not, it is actually physically impossible for that person to transmit HIV to somebody else. Um, and so that concept of getting people that are living with HIV on their meds, make them undetectable, they are no longer going to be transmitting the virus. So I, I think that's an extremely important thing, one, for people living with HIV to realize that they're not going to be transmitting a virus because that's extremely important to most HIV positive people that they don't pass this virus on. Sure. That's tantamount to most HIV positive people. Um, but also, once again, that helps with prevention too. Totally. You know, so it, thanks for bringing that up, Look, it's very true. And where is uh, Cleveland stand in this, uh, not only the research and advancement, like the work that you all are doing here, uh, you know, nationwide, how is Cleveland comparing to what is going on around the country, do you think? And where are we falling short, maybe? Well, the numbers are, like I said, definitely getting better. The, uh, the rate of new infection is falling and falling in most communities uh, in, in Cleveland or anywhere else. Uh, but again, there's still a lot of um, problems in the area of uh, especially young black men, uh, young men of color who are having sex with men. Those numbers are still rising. So, so there are certainly parts of the community that we really need to work on in terms of getting the education out there, getting prep out there, um, you know, having more conversations in those communities, giving them more resources, you know, improving the socioeconomic situation for those folks. Um, it's a lot to work on. Yeah. But yeah. But yeah, Cleveland's pretty reflective of, of the larger group, uh, certainly when it comes to sexual transmission. Uh, what we've seen is a reduction in, uh, fortunately, the reduction in the number of women becoming HIV infected um, has, has, has declined. Um, and uh, our rate of injection drug use um, is actually lower than the national average, and that is because Cleveland took uh, a very forward progressive stance on HIV AIDS back in the mid-1990s. and. Uh, in establishing a needle exchange program um, at the free clinic now called Circle Health. Um, and uh, we, that's been operating, uh, up and operating since the mid-1990s, I think 95 actually. And uh, so it's really kept that number down even, and even as they've seen with the opioid epidemic, their numbers of needle exchange has just gone through the, the roof. Um, they are credited with really keeping Cuyahoga County's rates down when compared to 
other Parts places. Of Southern Ohio. Southern Ohio, for God's sake. Yeah. So um, it was only been very recently that uh, the Ohio General Assembly uh, um, made a needle exchange programs uh, legal, mm. and. Um, and they did I know so thank goodness that Cleveland often ignores the state of Ohio uh, and it's it's really helped us a lot it's almost like what year is it in part of this, this country <laughs> yeah I don't yeah 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 so yeah but uh, so we see that um, and like you know um, and but the whole thing with HIV is we've made progress with new infections um, but if we take our eye off the ball we can lose that progress this is an infectious disease, and even though HIV is a virus and it doesn't have a brain and doesn't have a larger strategy, I mean, its goal, that virus's goal, is to keep living and to keep spreading. So if we keep our eye off the ball here, uh, we, can definitely, we can definitely go backwards, and uh, that's one of the things that we can't really afford to do right now because I do believe, not five years, but it is quite possible within 10 years uh, we could actually go out of the epidemic. We could actually move ourselves out of an epidemic. And that's really what we would, that would be most wonderful. That would be most wonderful. Well, fingers crossed, right? Yes. I mean, it's, yes. And it's, of course, it's due to the work that y'all are doing here, for example, and elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I applaud those. In this movie that you and I saw, mm-hmm. uh, After Louis, it was really an interesting perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and one that I certainly hadn't seen necessarily, which was, this young, this man who had, who was an activist when the AIDS broke, when AIDS broke out, and stuck with it, mm-hmm. right? You know, he had the posters on the wall, yeah. like you said, yeah. "Silence Equals Death." He had all of his protest mm-hmm. stuff that mm-hmm. you, that was visible throughout the film, mm-hmm. um, and I think you know it's due to people like that that were able to make these advances, mm-hmm. people who just refused to let go and refused to make let people allow people to forget. Mm-hmm. Uh, so thank you for that. Uh, all of you, uh, you know, what can the average person here in Cleveland, our listeners, you know, what can we do to help? Well, we would just love for people to consider being involved in a clinical trial. You know, uh, it's not even, you know, whether you'll enroll or not, but just talk to us, mm-hmm. learn more about it, understand the the need for for volunteers for these things. You know, obviously, Case has all kinds of research going on they have sleep studies and breathing studies and all kinds of stuff but uh, the more that people know about what we're doing and will consider stepping up to be a volunteer that would be really fantastic it who who would volunteer what types of populations are you looking for right now we're looking uh, for our HIV vaccine trials is uh, we're looking at people who are between the ages of 18 and 50 years old Five zero. Um, one thing about our vaccine trials is you cannot get HIV from our vaccine, and that's the first question, and it's an intelligent question, and it's an important question, but no, you cannot get HIV from the vaccine because our, our vaccines are not made from live or dead HIV virus. It's not like the flu shot where they exactly. give you a little bit of the flu. No, we right. don't do that. that. One, that's, yeah, exactly. We don't, you know, people like, and that's a good question, but the answer is no. Two, um, it's important is you do not have to be at risk for HIV to join one of our trials. And in fact, our current trials, we don't really want people to be at risk. So people who might not think that they would even be eligible to join one of these trials are the ones that we're looking for. So we don't want people to screen out thinking, well, I am married or I don't have sex or I have one partner or 
and that partner is a man or a woman or whatever, those we don't want people to screen the, screen themselves out because those are the folks who we do need for our current trials. So I'm married, so I can I can volunteer. You, it's quite possible that you could. We would You're ask not going to ask me any sex questions. Are we you? are going to ask you some sex <laughs> questions, but we're going to keep them very confidential. We're going to keep them very. I think my wife would like to answer some of them for you. No, no, You're, we would not. We would not share any of your answers with anybody. So, and nor would any of your answers surprise us. So. <laughs> yeah, we're not surprised, or we're not judgmental either, and, that, and I think that is important for people to know. And we generally also our other thing is we also generally provide compensation for our clinical trial mm -hmm. participants, um, and that's just basic fairness and equity and justice. Um, so we do provide compensation, and like Brooke said, we really um, just want people to not screen themselves out, not to say that's they're not looking for me, because we actually very well might be looking for you. Um, and how does one go about uh, volunteering? Well, I guess the easiest way is to either email us info at case.edu, which is pretty easy to remember, or call 216-844-4444, which is pretty easy to remember, or check out our website, clevelandhiv.org. And you're also on Twitter. We are. Clee HIV Trials. Yes. And we are also on Facebook. See, we're, we're all modern and we stuff. So you guys got the info at Case? Info at Case. That is actually my alias. So. <laughs> yeah, that's my it seems like that. Alias. Everybody would want that email. I know. And, and it came here? It came, we we wow. got it. Um, nice work. As a Case employee, we are given an email. And we're allowed to select five aliases. And I thought, well, maybe let's just check it out. And so that comes to my office. That's personal. And... And the people at the information desk were like, how did we not think of that? Exactly. <laughs> I, I actually had the president's office, a case, uh, emailed info and said, is anybody answering this email? And I told them yes. So they just wanted to make sure. I do did he volunteer some, to be I, part of one of your, your trials? Unfortunately, no. no. Unfortunately, no. Uh, we do get some interesting questions about the engineering school and things like that. But um, <laughs> but also, and you know, like we do have Facebook um, right now and things. And so even if people aren't interested uh, in joining a trial, they can like us on Facebook and maybe pass it on to their friends. So there's various ways that people can help. Um, and uh, like uh, Brooke said, our, our website is clevelandhiv.org. So if I go, let's say I decide I'm going to volunteer for your, your current mm -hmm. trial thing, uh, I email info mm -hmm. and you give me a questionnaire. Well, the first step is we just have a short phone conversation. Okay. So basically, I would call you and uh, talk with you about. Do you want to have the conversation for five now? Or six minutes. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> but it's very short, and we just kind of get a little bit of information about you, and then we tell you briefly about the study that mm -hmm. you might be eligible for, and then you decide if you want to set up the uh, one-hour in-person visit which we call the information session or the education session where you tell you all about the study everything we know about the study and then you can decide whether or not you'd like to screen for that study with one of our research nurses yeah, yeah so really the first process and one of the things we tell our people and it's true is we do not pressure people into joining our clinical trials sure it is it is something one it would make it wouldn't work to would make for bad clinical trials so we really want people that are interested we also realize that our clinical trials are not for everybody so if somebody talks to for instance Brooke on the phone um, they come in uh, either Brooke or Michael or I will sit down with them for an hour 
approximately an hour. I, I talk a lot, so it takes about an hour. They can get out in 45 minutes with the other guys. Um, but by the time that's over, the person is going to understand what the clinical trial is about, what is expected of them, uh, what the risks are, what the procedures are, and everything we know about it. So we really want people to understand these clinical trials and to understand everything about them. We will answer all of their questions. And even at that point, people could say, I'm not interested. And we go, well, thanks for coming in. You know, so it really is, we don't pressure if people, uh, like we say, the first, um, the first and most fundamental right, human right that people have with clinical trials is to not join them. So uh, we respect people's opinions on that. Or to stop is once they have joined. They are the boss. Yes, they are the they boss. They are the boss. So what's the downside? What's keeping people from doing it? Some people don't like shots. A lot of people don't like needles. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, some people don't have the time. Yeah. yeah. Some people think it's going to pay them a lot of money, and it doesn't pay a lot of money. Um, some people, again, I mean, something like, out. yeah, you're not going to get sick. You're not going to shave my eyebrows. No. 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 And, and one of the things we do is. If you want us to. Right. Yes, yes. If you want us to, we can. Tyler, what happened to your eyebrows? Yes, exactly. I'm in this trial thing yes, for yes. HIV. Yeah, no, no eyebrow shaving. Um, <laughs> but one of the things is we we're very upfront with any potential risks. These are, these are, we don't know. A lot of this stuff. So these are uh, these are clinical trials. If we knew everything, we wouldn't be having to do the trial. Right. But we do tell people risks. We try to give them sort of a percentage risk type things. Um, and so we're real upfront with what we know, but we're also real upfront with what we don't know. And I know we've had some people that have come in for an ed session. They haven't particularly been enamored with that clinical trial, but they could come back. Uh, when we have another one, and they find it more acceptable. So it really is, it really does very much with an individual, you know, mm -hmm. to also, so. So we need more volunteers. Yes. And always. you got the info email address. Info at case.edu. Jackpot. I know it is. Did you try to get case at case? <laughs> no, but I think I will right now. I'll go look and see. <laughs> yes. You got right. five yet? Yeah. Well, Ann, Brooke, and Bob, thank you very much. Is there anything else you would like to, that we missed anything? Is there anything you're just dying to say? Uh, look for us in the community. We would love to talk with you. Great. Great. And you can email them at info at, I can't believe you guys got the info. I know, I know, <laughs> I, know I'm, I appreciate it. I was so thrilled and you're expressing something. <laughs> <laughs> Did you walk around the hallways going, you guys, we got the info yes, and actually, nobody said anything? You're like, have, this is. I actually have it printed on a t-shirt. You went out to the bar, you just drank by yourself celebrating. Exactly. Got the info. Exactly. And, and be sure and go see. Angels in America, Ensemble Theater. And we're having representatives from here on the 6th. We will be there on the 6th at a post-show talkback. Great. Yep. That's going to be great. It's more of this conversation, I think. Uh, and that'll be great. I'll be there with you. And we'll just do this whole thing all over again. Okay. <laughs> so good. get off book, listen to this podcast a bunch of times, and learn your lines. Exactly. All right. Thank you very much thank again. You. This was wonderful. I thank appreciate you. it. And thank you for inviting me into your, your place of work. Thank you. All right. Thank you. All right, so there you have it, folks. Uh, great interview, great time with them. Uh, obviously, uh, they know what they're talking about, and we can get more of that after our May 6th performance of Angels in America. It's a Sunday 2 o'clock performance. And don't forget to catch Angels in America opening April 27th and running through May 20th, Friday and Saturday shows at 7 p.m. 
Sunday shows at 2 p.m. Uh, thanks again for listening. We'll see you at the show.